In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Saints of God, I preached for a wedding a number of years ago, and after the wedding I was sort of in the back shaking hands and greeting the, the guests of the wedding as we were slowly transitioning over for the, uh, the, the dinner, the meal. And I see this woman kind of come running down the aisle with her hand outstretched, racing at me. And you never kind of know at weddings how people are going to react with what you said and what you preached. And she just had this glowing look on her face and she grabbed my hand and she started pumping it up and down and she said, Pastor, thank you. That was such an amazing message. There was so much love and so much comfort and, and so much beauty She's like, I've pretty much given up on church because all of the sermons I hear these days only talk about money or, or fire and brimstone. And I didn't really say anything to her. Kind of just nodded and smiled and went about the rest of the evening. But if that wedding had been this past week, then what I could have... And what I would have loved to have said to her was, you should come to my church this Sunday then. I'm preaching both on money and hell. <laughs> because that's what Jesus puts before us this morning in the reading that we heard from our Gospel in Luke chapter 16. And to understand why this is, why Jesus is always talking about these two topics. Did you, did you know this? That... Jesus talks about hell more than Peter and Paul and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel combined. And somebody has done the math. It sounds about right. People estimate that if you took everything that Jesus said recorded in the Gospels, that 15% of what Jesus talked about pertains to money. Those are big percentages of what Jesus wants to share with us. And to understand why these are so important to us is to understand the context in which Jesus speaks the story that he shares with us this morning. You have to understand who his audience was. The people to whom Jesus is primarily telling this story. And to know this... You have to just look a couple verses before our text begins. We're in Luke 16. Our text begins at verse 19. Go back to verses 14 and 15, and this is what you'll hear. The Pharisees who loved money heard everything that Jesus was saying, and they began to sneer at Him. Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Luke, who records this, says that the Pharisees, these Pharisees, these are the guys who were viewed as being the religious elites of Jesus' day. Luke says these were guys who loved money. And not because of the power and the prestige, not because of the lavished lifestyle money could afford them, 
but because they viewed things like wealth and possessions and, and, and material prosperity as the undeniable proof of God's blessing and favor in their lives. For the Pharisees, you see, if you had, if you were one of the haves, it was because God gave it to you. And not just out of His bounteous goodness, He gave it to you because you had done something to deserve it. And conversely, if you were one of the have-nots, then the same was true. It was because you were not worthy, because you did not deserve God to bless your life. And so you see, in other words, for the Pharisees, money was not a tool to be used to bless others. It was the blessing. For them, money wasn't a means to do good. It was the good itself. For the Pharisees, money was not a means to further the kingdom of God. It was the unmistakable sign that God's kingdom had come to you. That God had blessed you over other people. And, as you can pretty much do for anything, the Pharisees were masters at taking apart the Scriptures and using it to justify this view. And that was the problem when Jesus entered the scene. And Jesus started saying things like this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Or when Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must first go and sell all of his possessions. And then Jesus went on to say, don't worry about what you wear or what you eat. Be concerned about furthering the kingdom of God and then God will bless you with everything else as well. Or, when Jesus said what we heard last Sunday, if your wealth is not serving the kingdom of God, then you are serving your wealth. And you cannot serve both God and money. And those are just in the Gospel of Luke. And this is what these Pharisees have been listening to Jesus say, and they've about had it. Luke tells us that they began to sneer at Jesus. That's one of those beautiful words we don't use enough. It doesn't just involve a, a look on your face, but the mumbling that you're saying under your breath. But not so much under your breath as you really want the people around you to actually hear it. They started bashing Jesus, mocking Him, out in the open in, in the hopes that they could turn the crowds so that they would stop listening to this babble that Jesus was saying. And like only Jesus can do, what was his response? He tells a story. The story that we have before us this morning. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. A lot of people debate as to whether or not this is a parable of Jesus, right? 
one of those earthly stories with the heavenly meaning, or if this is an actual account that really took place. To me, it really doesn't matter. Because really what Jesus is doing is He is telling a story that illustrates what Jesus preached in His famous Sermon on the Plain. Words that I just read from Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich. You'll get the kingdom. You've already received your reward. Jesus is telling a story to show this is how this will play out. Jesus is setting up the Pharisees for a major twist. He paints this picture of a man who wears the kind of clothes you don't just walk into a store and buy off the rack. He paints a picture of a guy who ate every single day the kind of meals and the kind of food that maybe if we're fortunate, maybe if we've been saving up for a long, long time, we have once a year. Or maybe when we go on a special getaway trip. This guy was eating meals like that all day, every day. And already the Pharisees, hearing Jesus describe this man's threads and his food, would have been thinking, just purely based on his lifestyle, this guy has made it. Finally, Jesus is acknowledging the beauty and the benefit of living a lavish lifestyle. If there ever was a righteous man, here he is, Jesus. Maybe they were even thinking, I wonder if he's talking about me. But Jesus continues, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. There could not be a more stark contrast. This other man is so weak, and so emaciated that he has to be carried. It's not as though he brought his sign and he brought his chair and every day he walked from his house and he plopped in front of the rich man's gate because he thought, surely, if anybody can afford to help me, it'd be this guy. No, we're told that he had to be carried. And... and this word to be laid at the gate, it's... It's a Greek word that really just means to throw. Whoever was taking care of him was done. And they had enough strength at least to carry him and plop him down in front of this rich man's gate every day. Not like it did him much good. This man's body was covered too, but not in fine linen or purple clothes. His body was covered in sores. And while the rich man was surrounded by friends and luxury and consuming a feast every day, this man was surrounded by dogs. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, of course he's surrounded by dogs because dogs are the best. That's not the point. You see, in the Middle East, dogs are not man's best friend. They're scavengers. They're unclean. They're strays. And here with every lick, the dogs were consuming him. And he's too weak to even scare them off. 
This beggar is a contrast to the rich man in every conceivable way. As much as the rich man has, the poor man lacks that much more. And just as the Pharisees would have assumed that the rich man was blessed, this poor man, well, they would have said he is cursed. I don't know what this guy did in his life or with his life, Jesus, but obviously he must have done some pretty bad things to receive this kind of rap from God. And, and this kind of thinking where we tie the fortunes of our lives to how we think God views us, this thinking is it's familiar to us, isn't it? You know, I'm going to share you, uh, uh, with you a little secret this morning. In the five years that I have been privileged to be your pastor, I think that this time right now might be the most challenging and grief-stricken time the families of our congregation have experienced. And yes, I say that knowing full well that we are coming out of a worldwide pandemic. It almost seems like every family, every individual here at Prince of Peace is carrying some sort of painful cross. Enduring some sort of painful affliction, suffering some kind of spiritual attack, more than I have seen in the past five years. Which means that many of us are asking these questions Why, God? What did I do to deserve this? And this beggar is exhibit A when the challenge is raised. If a loving and powerful God existed, then guys like this, lives like mine, would not. This man has nothing but his misery. And it feels so familiar. And some of you are sitting there looking around going, man, pastor is talking about me. And maybe I am. But what you need to know and understand is that I'm probably also talking about the person who's sitting next to you or behind you. And it's so easy to overlook them. And this is one of the points that Jesus is making and you cannot miss it. That the more money the more financially well-off and blessed your life is, the easier it is to overlook them. I think sometimes we assume, you know, if someone is here, if someone had the strength to get up on Sunday morning to make their way through those back doors with a smile on their face, then everything in their life must be fine. But have you ever stopped and wondered, what if, what if he didn't walk through that door? What if the only reason that he's here is because it actually felt like someone was dragging him out of bed and throwing him down here? Or what if the reason that she's got makeup on this morning and got all dolled up for today isn't because she wanted to look nice for everyone, but it's because she's trying to cover up the bags under her eyes because she hasn't slept for a week 
or because she can't stop crying every morning, and this morning was no different. What if the person next to you came here, came to the gates of heaven this morning because this is all they have left? Because they're just hoping for a morsel of good news. Because they're just relishing one more invitation to be a guest at his table. You have to know that this is happening. And you can't overlook each other. I cannot stress this enough. You need to pray for your church family, brothers and sisters. You need to mightily wrestle in prayer for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. To love them, to care for them, and as you are able to help them. They need all of it. And every single Sunday, God lays them at your gate. This man had more than his misery, and so do you. You know what this beggar had? Maybe the only thing that he had that the rich man didn't? But read through this account again and make a list of all of the things that each one of them have, good things at least, and there's really only one thing you can come back to that this beggar had that the rich man didn't. Did you catch it? He had a name. Lazarus. And you can read through every single story that Jesus ever told and you will not find another single person in any of them who was ever given a name but Lazarus. And to add injury to insult, do you know what the name Lazarus means? It's, it's, a, it's a, a New Testament version of the name Eliezer. And the name means, the Lord is my helper. Right. Because if the Lord was my helper, where's the help? You see, this is why the question that we ask the one that we're tempted to ask in the midst of our pain, this is why this question, why aren't you helping me, God, is so foolish. Because we tend to ask this question with a very singular and narrow answer in mind. Did God not help Lazarus? The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And you know why they did that? It wasn't because the angels just really liked this guy. It wasn't because they thought he caught a bad rap in life, so, so they were going to give him the special treatment. No, remember, and we'll look at this next Sunday actually, remember that angels can only do what God commands them to do. God is the one who sent them and said, it's time to bring my son home. And they did. Just as Lazarus was too weak to make it to the rich man's gate on his own every day, so he was also too weak and too sinful to make it up into heaven on his own merits. 
So God commands His angels to carry Him in on the merits of His only Son. Because the Lord is His helper. Contrast that now with the rich man. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. You know, people often ask me these days, you know, the the whole literal hell thing, the fire and, and brimstone and sulfur and lake of fire, you don't really believe that, do you? And when I was younger and I had more energy and more time and things like that, I would get into debates and discussions with people to answer this question. But now, I think I've found just the perfect answer. When somebody says, you, you don't really believe in the literal hell, do you? I go, no. No, not, not the one you're describing there. I actually think it's going to be way worse than that. And the story that Jesus tells here actually holds that up. I think most people, including us sometimes, we have this caricature of hell, don't we? We tend to think that hell is the place where God sends people who have committed some egregious sin or who didn't believe in God and and so God casts them out of His presence forever against their will And maybe you even think God sort of likes the justice of it all. But compare that caricature with the rich man. Father Abraham, he said, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. He gets a chance to make a request. And what does he ask for? I think more important is what does he not ask for? He doesn't say, Father Abraham, get me out of here. He doesn't say, Father Abraham, forgive me for my sins. He doesn't say, Father Abraham, let me up into the mansions of heaven. He says none of that. His only request is send Lazarus down here with some water It's kind of hot. You see what he's saying? He has no desire to leave. Hell is not the place where God forcibly sends people against their will. This is the problem with the picture that hell is just fire and brimstone. Because when you say to someone, well, everybody who ends up in hell is because they chose that, and people say to you, who in the world would choose to spend an eternity in a burning lake of fire? That's a good point. But that really isn't what hell is all about. That isn't the hell of hell anyway. Here's what it is. And tell me if you've ever known someone or even ever thought to yourself, I want to have an existence completely void of God. I don't want God to interfere with my life. I don't want Him to help me. I don't want Him to make any decisions for me. I want Him to be nowhere near me. And what hell is, is God finally saying, you got it. Here you go. You see, the problem is, people think that they can live this life without God. 
millions and perhaps billions of people are living in the world right now thinking God does not exist. He plays no role in my life. But because they live in God's creation, because they are God's creation, He does still send the rain and the sunshine on both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. They are not living without God, but one day they will. And what they had always wanted will be nothing like what they always thought it would be. It's interesting when this rich man cries out to Father Abraham, did you catch it? He knew Lazarus' name too. It wasn't as though he had maybe this excuse that, well, I didn't leave my mansion for like 20 years. I never knew there was a guy out there. If I had known, if I had just not been ignorant of this man's existence, no, he knew exactly who Lazarus was. And yet, even in hell, the rich man is still clinging to his false material identity. He still thinks that his stuff, which he doesn't even have anymore, makes him better than Lazarus. And after Abraham goes on to explain, none of this can happen because, you know, there's this giant chasm between heaven and hell. Abraham goes on and this is how the the rich man responds. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my house for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Okay, if you can't send Lazarus to hell, then at least send him back to earth so that he can warn my brothers. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And there's where it ends. And it seems like this is just a dreadful way to end a story. It seems like Abraham is just flat out saying no to the rich man's request. And and I guess in a sense, he is. No, he will not send Lazarus back to the rich man's brothers. But not because Abraham doesn't love his brothers. More importantly, not because God doesn't care about this man's brothers. Not because God did not want to save them. But Abraham says no because he knows that shock value will not cut it. It won't work. That for as many things in this life that scare the hell out of us, scaring us out of hell is not how God brings people into the kingdom. And some of you have told me that. Some of you have told me that you were raised in a home and maybe even a church where the whole reason you were a Christian was just because you didn't want to go to hell. And I ask you, what was that like? And you say it was dreadful. Because that's not how God brings people into the kingdom. Abraham says, Your brothers have the only thing that has the power to call them out of darkness into the kingdom of light. They have Moses and the prophets. And what does that mean? When you and I hear Moses and the prophets, we probably think Old Testament you know, with the flood and the plagues 
and the raining down over Sodom and Gomorrah, and you think, yeah, maybe if we, we read more of those events, yeah, people might be scared a little bit into believing. Or, or maybe you think Old Testament, Moses, this is the Ten Commandments. So maybe what Abraham is suggesting is your brothers need to go back and memorize the Ten Commandments and live the kind of life that will get them out of this world and into and past the gates of heaven. But that's not what Abraham meant either. Remember in Jesus' day, what you and I call the Old Testament was just the Bible. There was no New Testament. Jesus was living it. So, when Jesus references Moses and the prophets, he's talking about the Scriptures. So, how does the Bible, even in Jesus' day, how can it help these brothers avoid hell? Well, do you remember... You remember the story at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24? It's on the day of Easter when Jesus meets up on the road with these two disciples heading from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they don't recognize Jesus for some reason. And so Jesus kind of plays along. And Jesus says to them, Hey guys, why are you so sad? Why so downcast? What's going on? And they look at Jesus like, Are you serious? Have you been living under a rock these past couple of days? Don't you have any idea what's taken place? Oh, there was this guy named Jesus from Nazareth, and he preached and he spoke like no one we had ever heard, and he performed miracles and signs, things that we had never seen. And, and it wasn't just then that, that he was arrested and crucified. It wasn't just that they took this powerful speaker and, and miracle worker away from us, but we had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped that He was the Christ. And then in this strange twist, some of our women went to His tomb this morning to anoint His body, and they came back and said they saw a bunch of angels, and the angels told them that Jesus had risen from the dead, but there's no way that could have happened, and so we don't know what to make of it. That's, that's what's on our mind. And Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. When Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, he's saying they have the scriptures. The scriptures which give us Jesus. And friends, the same is true for you and for me and everyone you know and everyone you love and all of the people that you are terrified right now are on the way to meet the fate of this rich man. And if you want them to avoid that future, there is only one thing you can do. Tell them what these scriptures, tell them what your Savior tells you. Tell them that you have a name too. That the living God, that the Almighty Lord and Judge has put His very name on you in holy baptism. Tell them that the story of the God-man who did actually rise from the dead did it not to shock you, but to save you. To show you that even in death, 
it is no match for him. Give them that Jesus, your Jesus, so that even in their despair, when it seems like the world is uh, against them and that they're convinced that they are all alone in this life, give them the one who promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Give them Jesus, your Jesus, so that they can say with you and me in great confidence, my name is Lazarus too. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper, and he is. Friends, you cannot get a better name than that. And in Jesus, it's yours. I know it doesn't always feel like it in this life, but brothers and sisters, God, your Father in heaven, has sacrificed far too much in the life and death of his only son to abandon you now. And he hasn't, and he won't. You have Moses and the prophets, and that means that you have Jesus. And you do. And so may he sustain and uplift you by his grace today and always until that day comes when he commands his angels to come and carry you home to himself. In the name of Jesus.